0: Good morning. I'm so glad to see all of you here. Welcome to EP Church. Uh, Can I just say how great it was while Bill was praying? I, I, I loved hearing the sounds of babies and children here at EP Church. That just makes me so happy to see families and all of you back here in God's house together to worship the Lord. Don't feel bad at all. Amen. Yeah, don't feel bad at all parents. If your children talk, mine do. Uh, don't feel bad at all. Uh, it's great that they're here. Today we are going to begin to take a, a two-week break from our sermon series in the book of Acts. We are going to be looking at Luke 19 today for Palm Sunday, and then next Sunday, Easter Sunday, Pastor Harrison's going to be preaching on the resurrection. So we will be taking a break from Acts and then starting back up in three Sundays from now. Uh, three Sundays from now, uh, in Acts again. Today we're going to read Luke 19, 11, and then 28 to 40. This passage is one of the occurrences of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where Jesus comes to Jerusalem just a week before his death. Before the, uh, triumphal entry, Jesus speaks a parable about 10 minus. Uh, Other places call it the parable of the 10 talents. And it's very important because it helps us understand what he's taught, what's happening in the triumphal entry. So I encourage you later today to go and read that parable and think on it and the connections that exist. We don't have time to dig into all of that. But in Luke 19, beginning in verse 28, sorry, we'll, we'll talk about verse 11 later, beginning in 28, And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to encourage us, to comfort us, to challenge us. Holy Spirit, be with us now and speak to us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For some reason, humanity is often fascinated with royalty. Despite America having declared independence almost 200 years ago, In modern history, many people in America are fascinated with British, the United Kingdom's royalty. Princess Diana, the royal weddings, more recently the scandal involving Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, as well as TV shows like The Crown, were fascinated with it. Louis XIV, the French king, was one of the greatest monarchs in all of history. He had the most power and one of the wealthiest, grandest courts. He ruled for over 60 years, the longest in French history. In 17th century France, the king was viewed as king by divine right. He was in his position because God had given it to him. All nobles longed to be near the king. The king was the center of the world. King Louis built the hall of mirrors in his palace at Versailles. It was a 73 meter long hall with over 350 mirrors along the length. Everything was gilded in a wealth of gold. And King Louis would be at the one end, seated on a da- dais on his throne, surrounded by the French court, and any noble or dignitary who came to visit him would walk along this hall, 70 meters, surrounded by meters, with the king just sitting there staring at him before, he came before, the ki- before they came before the king to see him. Talk about intimidation. Talk about the anxiety that those people would have felt as they walked down along there. Our passage is also about a king but not a king who reigns in arrogance, having people come to him, but a king who comes in humility, who comes to his people in their need, a king who comes seated on a donkey. There is a human longing for a savior savior who will deliver us from the oppression that we experience, from the evil situations that surround us. We long for a savior. This longing finds expression in our fascination with superhero movies and our fascination with royalty and our fascination with all sorts of ideas of a savior or an authority figure who saves us. And we see it in our passage in verse 11. When the disciples heard these things that he was talking about, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. His disciples were longing and expecting the same thing. The whole Jewish nation was longing for a savior who would deliver them from the oppression that they were experiencing. The Jewish nation saw the brokenness of the world around them and they longed for God to do something about it. And our passage shows that Jesus was that long-awaited king. In verse 38, the multitudes of Jesus' followers praised God saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They praised him. They were right. Jesus was that long awaited king. But he did not, a king that came as they expected. They were expecting and longing for a savior that would deliver a mighty victory over the Roman Empire, deliver them from their slavery to Rome, and establish a Jewish nation that would return to its heights as it had been under Solomon David. But Jesus didn't come. To deliver in that way. He didn't come just to save the oppressed Jewish people. He came to die for the sins that is in every single human heart and free us from that sin. We who live on the other side of Christ's death and resurrection, we know that he is the king who has come to bring deliverance and salvation through his death. We know that he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament speaks about, but the people at Jesus's time did not know that. In our passage, we see that Jesus the king has come And the watching crowds have two choices at his arrival. They can either reject him and crucify him, or they can accept and submit to him. So the big idea we see in our passage is that Jesus the king has come in victorious, sorrowful death, so we should accept and submit to him. Jesus the king has come in victorious, sorrowful death, and so we should accept and submit to him. And we're going to explore this big idea through three main points. The king has come in victory. The king has come in sorrow, and the king has come in death. First, the king has come in victory. Our passage, as I've already said, shows that Jesus, the king, has come. Luke has intentionally tied the triumphal entry to that parable of the talents where Jesus is the returning king. You see, the parable spoke about how a king gave some talents to his followers, and then he left, and then he's going to come back. Jesus is saying, I'm that king, You know, it's very ironic uh, that he's telling this, this parable right before he goes into Jerusalem as a returning king because the king, as we'll see a little bit later, doesn't come to help his people. He comes in judgment. In verse 38, Jesus' followers praise him as king, and when the Pharisees see this, they rebuke Jesus, saying, what are you doing? Rebuke your disciples. How can they do this? And he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He is the king, and he's going to be praised as the king. He comes riding on a donkey, and this is important because it is pointing back to some Old Testament prophecies and promises that had occurred Luke 19 is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, which Bill read earlier. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is a fulfillment of this prophecy, and Jesus knew that and is demonstrating it. But there's also further important significance to this colt. You see, it had not been ridden ever. That's what the passage says. And this is important because in the Old Testament, animals that had not been ridden, had not been broken and used for labor, were sacred. They were often sacrificed because they were special. They had never been used for work. And so they were sacrificed to God. So this animal is sacred. There could even be an echo of 1 Samuel 6-7 where 1 Samuel 6-7 says two, that two cows that had not had a yoke placed upon them pulled the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem after David had saved the Ark from the Philistines. Here we see Jesus, the true presence of God among man, being brought into Jerusalem in a similar manner on an unridden animal. Jesus' authority is emphasized again and again in Luke 19. In verse 33, we see that he is the cult's lord, not the owner's. He can commandeer it and take use of it, just as ancient kings would always commandeer whatever they needed. In verse 35, we see that Jesus is placed on the cult by the crowds, as if he is being enthroned. In verse 36, we see the crowds place their cloaks on the road so that Jesus and the donkey can ride across it. This is an echo of other similar events in the Old Testament where kings would walk upon people's cloaks. There are even echoes of David in this passage. In verse 37, we see when Jesus came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the crowds shout in joyful praise of God. This is an echo of 2 Samuel 15, 30, when David shamefully left Jerusalem. That passage says David continued up the Mount of Olives. David is leaving where Jesus is entering. David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Great David's greater son is entering Jesus, Jerusalem, triumphantly, where his father, David, left it in shame. All of these elements in our passage combine to teach and show us that Jesus is the long-awaited king, the long-awaited Messiah that has come to bring salvation and deliverance. He has victoriously returned. This reality that was glimpsed on Palm Sunday is even more fully true right now. Jesus has been praised as king when he entered Jerusalem then, and now he is fully, truly enthroned in heaven on the king on the kingly throne. Ephesians 1 tells us that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus was recognized as king when he entered Jerusalem, but he is fully and truly king right now. Historically, in the process of a king or queen being crowned, Bishops, nobles, and other individuals would come before them, pay homage, and swear fealty to the new king or queen. Sometimes it didn't go that smoothly. Individuals competed over who was the rightful king, demanding that other, their competitors, swear fealty to them and pay homage. The longest military conflict in Europe, the Hundred Years' War, saw this happen again and again five generations of kings from two rival dynasties fought over who was the rightful king of France sometimes these two kings were cousins sometimes these two kings were married to the same to the same family through two different sisters but they would fight they would say i'm the rightful king not you you need to pay fealty and swear fealty to me they portrayed their rivals as upstarts and rebels All humanity are the lawful subjects of King Jesus. We must all bend the knee and pay homage to him eventually. We must all swear fealty or there will be consequences. We must all accept and submit to our King Jesus as our Savior. But unlike disputes over kings throughout human history, there is only one rightful king of all the earth. There's only one rightful king of the whole universe, and that's Jesus so our passage shows us the king has come. Salvation and deliverance from sin, brokenness, evil has been secured. What should our response be to the king's return? How should we live differently? First, we should accept and submit. We should swear fealty. If we have not, we should examine our hearts. Why have we not accepted and submitted to this king who has come back, not arrogantly like Louis XIV, but humbly, humbly, willing to die for his subjects. Have you accepted and submitted to King Jesus? If you haven't, please come and talk to me. Talk to somebody you know here at EP Church and ask what it means to have faith and trust in him. Then once we accept and submit, we should allow the truth of King Jesus' deliverance and salvation to inform and impact every facet of our lives. It should seep down into every nook and cranny so that everything we do, every decision we made is influenced by the fact that that we are subjects of King Jesus. The reality of the gospel and King Jesus' coming should be the overarching story of our lives, and it should impact everything we do. In our passage, the people respond to King Jesus' coming, his return to Jerusalem, in praise. They worship God for his coming. We also should respond in praise and worship that the king has come. And worship is so important because worship shows what we value, what we love, and worship influence impacts who we are. In his book, You Are What You Love, James K.A. Smith says, Worship works from the top down. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes us. He remakes us. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires and rehabituates our love. Worship isn't just something we do, it is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God remakes our hearts. When we come here to worship, when we worship in our homes, God is doing something to us. He's changing us so that we value and love what he values and loves. As we worship our King Jesus, he will remake us and remold us into his likeness. As we accept and submit to the King in faith, he will remake us and transform us to love what he loves. So I encourage you this week, as we enter this next week, Passion Week, where we reflect on the amazing salvation that God has provided for us, spend rich times in worship, both personally and corporately, Personally, spend a few minutes every day. Sing a song. doesn't matter how bad your voice is. Trust me, if you heard me, you'd be like, wow, anybody can sing. (laughs) Spend some time in worship. Pray, meditate on the scriptures individually. Do it as a family. What a rich gift to your children. Come here. I'm so glad you're here today. We will have other opportunities Thursday, Monday, Thursday. We've got a great online Tenebrae service that will be available. And then next Easter Sunday. Spend rich times in God's word and in worship together. But we see in our passage that the king has not only come in victory, he has come in sorrow. Luke is unique in that the triumphal entry is not that triumphant at the end. In verse 41, we see as the king is coming to Jerusalem, we see a confusing and startling development in verse 41. We see that it says when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. That's not very triumphant. He comes to Jerusalem and he's weeping. What's going on? In verse 42 to 44, we see the reason why Jesus is sorrowful and weeping when he sees the city because he knows the judgment and destruction that awaits the city. He's sorrowful and weeping because they have not recognized that he is God in the flesh, the king who has come, and he knows that they're going to reject them. Jerusalem was to be the place where God's temple allowed for humanity and God to come together in a restored relationship, but Israel had sinfully failed at that mission again and again and again. Through the prophets, God had repeatedly called them back to the relationship and mission for which he had saved them, but they had ignored it, and they were going to ignore Jesus. Jesus' victorious return is marred by the reality that the city and the nation of Israel do not recognize that their king is. And God has come. Yes, in our passage, some of them are rejoicing. His disciples are rejoicing his return. But the religious leaders, they reject him. They rebuke him and his followers for what's happening. And the same crowds which joyfully shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise in heaven and glory in the highest. This same crowd will soon shout, crucify him. And all of his disciples will abandon him. That's why Jesus weeps. He knows that they have rejected God. He knows what he must undergo in order to bring them back to the Father. The crowds that joyfully received Jesus just a few days later are going to be screaming for his death. Jesus weeps at seeing Jerusalem because that is the heart of our creator God toward his sinful, rebellious, lost creation. That's the heart of our God. The rejection of Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders is merely an echo of the total rejection of our heavenly Father by all of humanity. Each one of us has rejected God just in the same manner that they have. Though our God will punish sin, and he must, his first response to sin and the brokenness of humanity is not anger. It's not his first response. His first response is rather sadness, grief that his creation has rejected him. And that sadness finds its roots in God's deep, unrelenting love for his creation, for each one of us. There's a wonderful book that came out this past year called Gentle and Lowly. It's written by Dane Ortland. I highly recommend you read it if you want to understand Jesus' heart better. And in that book, he says the cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. When God sees our brokenness, our sin, He doesn't shrink back in disgust. He moves towards us in compassion and love. I want you to think of the greatest sorrow you've ever experienced. Think of the greatest sorrow you've ever experienced. Maybe it's some horrific betrayal by somebody that you trusted and loved. Maybe it is the loss of a loved one, the loss of a spouse, a child. Maybe it is something that you just feel like you're never going to be able to overcome. God's sorrow over our fallen, broken, broken, Humanity is greater than that sorrow, but his sorrow does not cause him to shrink back in disappointment or anger. It propels him outward in love. It propels him downward to the earth to dwell among us, and it propelled him up onto the cross to die for us. Do we understand our God as one who views his creation through the lens of unrelenting love, a love that caused him to go to the cross? Do we know that God's heart is broken and saddened over the sin of the world to such an extent that he weeps? This isn't the only instance where Jesus wept. We cultivate this understanding of God's heart through study of his word, through deep meditation on what it says in times of intentional prayer with the Lord. And as we study God's heart, we will also grow to have his heart. He will remake us, as I said, The same things that grieve his heart will grieve ours. Do we weep over those who have rejected God as their creator and Lord? Too often we see the sin of this world and our first impulse, our first reaction is anger. And I get that. I understand that. There's been things recently that made me very angry. But our first response should rather be sadness. Sadness, the fact that somebody created in God's image has so rejected God that they would sin in such a way. Sadness over the fact that they are under God's wrath and judgment. Sadness over the fact that they might never know the one who created them. The king has come and he has come in victory, but it is a victory mixed with sadness. Sadness that the victory over sin and death was necessary at all. Sadness over the reality of humanity's sin and God's good creation's brokenness. As Christians, we currently live in the already not yet between Christ's first victorious coming and his second final complete victorious coming. His first coming accomplished the work of salvation. His second coming will see that work finally fully realized. And so though we know that that victory is secure, we still exist in a world where sadness and sorrow should be natural, should be a natural emotion to us. We live in that tension And we grieve all of the sin and brokenness which still surrounds us. But we grieve as those with hope. A hope which we must constantly put forth to ourselves, to our fellow Christians, and to the world which surrounds us. So we see that the king has come in victory, he has come in sorrow, but he has also come to die. That wasn't a surprise to him and it wasn't a surprise to his heavenly father. How can Jesus who comes in victory also come in sorrow? How is that two things possible in exactly the same hour? The sorrow is the result of humanity's sin. And the true victory can only be secured by Jesus' death for sin. The reality is that though Jesus came as king, he did not come entirely as the first century Jewish people expected, or as they interpreted the Old Testament prophecies. They were expecting a mighty king who would come and deliver them a great military victory. Zechariah 9.9, 9, the passage which is being fulfilled here in Luke 19, goes on beyond that first instance. Let me read the whole thing. Zechariah 9.9 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous in bringing salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus came. He came mounted on a donkey. He came bringing righteousness and salvation. But then the passage goes on. In verse 10, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle boat shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double... Zechariah 9 and many other Old Testament prophecies of God's Messiah said that the Messiah would bring salvation and that the long-awaited king's salvation would have worldwide ramifications. There would be no more war. There would be peace everywhere. But that's not what happened when Jesus came, was it? There's still wars. There's still a lack of peace. There's no kingdom that spreads from sea to sea, at least not as the earth explains it. Just days after Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem, Jesus would die on a cross in apparent defeat. Where is the salvation, the deliverance, the peace that has spread throughout the earth? Where is it? What's going on here? The reality is that Jesus came first to resolve the inner sin that every single human had. And until that inner sin problem was resolved, God couldn't bring peace and restoration to the whole earth. He couldn't bring restoration to his creation. Sin needed to be addressed first before peace could enter into the hearts of every person that would then overflow to all the ends of the earth so that his kingdom would spread from sea to sea. And that's why there's other Old Testament passages that speak about how the Messiah is going to come and he's going to die. Isaiah 52 to 53 is a passage familiar to many of you. We sang a song based on a man of sorrow In that passage, it speaks about the suffering servant, the servant who is going to die. That servant is Jesus. This passage hints that sin would have to be resolved before worldwide redemption and peace could be brought about. Let's read a little bit of that, Isaiah 53, 3-6. It goes, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This passage written over 700 years before Jesus came was fulfilled a couple of days after the triumphant entry. The king had to die for sin so that salvation could spread from individuals to the whole world. That death would then make possible the worldwide peace and restoration, which Zechariah 9 and so many other passages it just spoke of. And Jesus knew this. In his own ministry, he spoke again and again of this. In John 12, a group of Gentiles come to his disciples and want to know more about Jesus. And Jesus speaks to both his disciples and these Gentiles and says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus was saying, the hour of the son of man is to be glorified has come. He wasn't speaking about him being set up on an earthly throne that was going to see his kingdom spread over all the earth. No, his hour of glorification was his death because it was the death that would bring salvation and peace to many, a multitude. That's what he speaks about. A dormant seed, like he speaks about in that passage, looks dead. Seeds must be buried in the ground and then die as seeds to bring forth a bountiful harvest. D.A. Carson writing on this passage says, like the seed whose death is the germination of life for a great crop, so Jesus' death generates a plentiful harvest. Jesus died and resulted in a multitude of people who have been saved and will be saved and will worship in heaven forever. The paradox of Christianity is that victory came through death. The world would call it defeat and the world does call it defeat but it wasn't. It was victory. I encourage you this week, meditate on that. Meditate on Christ's victorious death. Not in shame that it was your sin that caused it, but in gratitude. Not in grief, but in joy. Meditate on it. Think on it. Be strengthened by it. Paul, the Apostle Paul, reflecting on this in Galatians 2, says, Galatians 2 he reflects on how the law has brought condemnation upon him but that he has been freed from it he says in Galatians 2 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me that is amazing each one of us, when we place trust, our trust in Jesus Christ, we have become part of him, and we died with him on that cross. And as we'll learn next Sunday, we will be raised in victory from that death with him so that sin is no longer something that we are trapped in. We're no longer slaves. We have been made free in Jesus Christ. So meditate on the implications of Christ's victorious death for your life. Each of us is faced with the same question that the watching crowds We're faced with. Have you accepted Jesus or will you reject him? Meditate on that. Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the one who died for you so that you might have salvation. If Christ's paradoxical death brought victory and we are called to follow him and emulate him, then what paradoxical suffering are you being called to today in your life? What paradoxical suffering are you being called to enter into? I love the original Star Wars movies. I grew up watching them again and again. Han Solo is one of my favorite characters. And Han Solo, not in the movies, uh, but in kind of the the big story that revolves around the movies, he saved Chewbacca, the Wookiee, from slavery to the evil empire. He set him free. And Chewbacca, in turn, swore a Wookiee life debt to Han, saying, I'm going to follow you forever. I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to die for you. We also have been similarly saved. We also have been similarly saved from slavery and death. Jesus has saved us from slavery to sin. He has saved us from a death sentence that hangs over each one of us. How can we do anything less than follow and serve him for the rest of our lives? And that's what we're called to do again and again in the New Testament. Paul, reflecting on this in Philippians 2, tells the Philippians to live like this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." We have a king who came in victory. He came in sorrow, but his victorious, sorrowful death has freed us so that we in turn can live differently. Let us out of that salvation now live differently in this world. Let us be transformed by his Holy Spirit, which is inside of each one of us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you have freed us from sin and death. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come in victory, a victory that has been secured but is being worked out even now in every sphere of our lives and throughout the whole world. We thank you that though you came in sorrow and you are still grieved over sin, that your victorious sorrowful death has made it possible for us to praise and worship with much joy. We thank you, Lord God, that as we trust and believe in you, you are working in us to reform us and remake us. We pray, Lord God, that this week we might reflect and meditate upon your great salvation and that it might slowly transform us as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.